This is Terry Dade. You're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to episode 192 of Focus on Metal. Can you believe it? Eight episodes away from the big 200. Some reason in podcasting, that seems to be the big number when you hit 200. I'm not sure why, but hey, we're eight episodes away from hitting that number. So, as I had promised last week, our metal flag is flying high once again this week. Our one and only guest is yet another one of the great metal producers that would be Terry Date. I still don't know how Richie is able to get a hold of these guys and convince them to come on the show, but whatever it is that he's doing, I hope he keeps right on doing it because I know I really enjoy talking to these guys. From the letters I get from you guys, seems like you guys like to hear from these guys as well. And I also know that Richie has got another probably two, if not three other Great producers lined up in the works. Speaking of lined up in the works, just to let you know that, uh, like I said, this week, it's all going to be Terry Date. But next week, it's kind of that end of July, beginning of August. It's the dead center of summer, and I've got not one, but two great guests on for next week. One, a really great brand new band with an old school sound and an old school mentor from Germany, and also a great indie band out of the great state of Nebraska. I don't think we've ever had anyone from Nebraska on the show before, but after next week, won't be able to say that. And why these two bands? Because I thought, you know, like I said, middle of summer, you like to have that kind of feel-good metal, and these two bands I'm going to have on next week, they definitely represent two different waves of great, feel-good, old-school metal. But right now, let's do what we always do, open the show, a little track of the week, and after that, going right into our talk with Terry Date. <laughs> Right, track of the week this week is a band from Italy. I don't think we've had an Italian band on the show since March of 2013 when we featured my talk with Steel Razor. This week on Focus on Metal, we are proud to bring you Hell's Chopper and their release, First Ride. So these guys have been kicking around since about 2007. They had a couple of different member change-ups, gone through a lot of stuff, and I think they've finally gotten down to kind of their core you know band and everything and that let them put out at just the beginning of june first ride 12 tracks of great metal and it's interesting it's kind of a combination of new kind of sound along with that classic kind of nawabum thing as well just kind of cool stuff kind of like their yeah their motto if you will they they say motorbikes half naked dancers alcohol endless nights sweat and rock and roll are the ideals of the band. So in a true Italian band fashion, these guys definitely know how to have fun. This is definitely one of those releases that's not all totally overbearingly heavy. It's also not uh, just too lightweight as well. It just kind of sits in that sweet spot. Definitely a good kind of an album for, you know, top down, going really fast kind of a thing. Hey, riding your bike, anything like that. But this one kind of just fits that cool summertime metal bill so i'm gonna play you a track if you're digging the track you can check these guys out on facebook at facebook.com slash pages slash hells 
hellschopper-chopper, or you can also go right to their website, hellschopper.com. So I kind of looked around the album a little bit, and one of the songs that seems to kind of stand out, maybe kind of positioned a little bit as a single, is the song Burn the Witches. Just that alone had that really cool metal vibe for me, Burn the Witches. It brought back, you know, Venom and Merciful Fate and all that good stuff. And uh, they have some other great ones out here, Rock Out Fool, Feel the Fire, just a lot of different ones. But Burn the Witches, that just seemed to stick right out to me. So for Track of the Week this week, from Hell's Chopper, from their first debut album, First Ride, this is Burn the Witches. take it away all right so this week we have a, a great guest uh, i'm sure everybody knows this guy's produced many albums over the years uh so we've got terry date on the line here today so how are you doing terry i'm doing good excellent so of course we might as well start at uh, the beginning how did you uh, get into the production end of the music business in the first place um i had been uh engineering projects in seattle 
for a couple of years, and a band called Metal Church came to me to engineer their first record. And uh, we spent, I think, about five weeks doing that record. Maybe mm-hmm. two weeks, I can't remember. <laughs> okay. But um, uh, so we finished it, and uh, they gave me a production credit uh, on the record as sort of a thank you. And from that point on, that record did pretty well. And from that point on, I started getting uh, hired as a producer as well as an engineer. Okay. And was that something you wanted? Did you want to get into the production side of things? Well, yeah. I mean, I, it's, I was kind of doing the same thing anyway, but uh, the production side of things just gave me a little bit more. I, I guess I, I just got to do a little bit more than I would have as just an engineer. Yeah. And when, like, the, obviously the Metal Church album was uh, on Electra Records, so a major label. And I know Metal Church are from the Seattle area. Did that have a, uh, like, was, was that mainly why they got you into engineer the record? Uh, yeah, we engineered it in Seattle. Um, it was uh, it was not on Electra when we did it. It was uh, independent. It was an independent record by some people here in Seattle. And uh, once it started selling well, um, it, it got picked up by Electra. Okay. Yeah. And I, I mean, I imagine that must have given you some massive street cred with that because that is a pretty influential album that a lot of people look back on. It's one of my favorites. I mean, I, I, I love the guys and um, I think the, the way we made the record was it was really more punk rock than metal as far as our attitude. And yeah, we just we, we blasted it out really fast um, and you know, it was just it was just a fun thing to do. They're all Seattle guys. They're all local. Um, we communicated really well, and and it was it was not uh, there was we didn't overthink it. We just did it. Now, when you did the next one with them, was it the same kind of vibe since they already knew you, or did they come in a little bit differently now that they were kind of more of a known entity, or was it any how how different was it? Well, the second one, uh, the second Metal Church record was uh, after they'd been signed to. Electra mm. and me being kind of a new guy uh, with not a not uh, with no name recognition. They actually uh, the label actually hired a producer named Mark Dodson to do the second record, and and then I I helped on the record because yeah. the guys wanted wanted me around. Um, and uh, and then the third record, they came back and had me produce the third record. Right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I just, you know, the, the guys in the band, Kurt Vanderhoof is still very active out there um, with his band. With Metal Church is still out there with Kurt running the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has some other projects, too, that, you know, incredibly talented guy. The rest of the guys, good friends, really talented also. I don't know if any of them are actively working in the business, but Kurt definitely is. Of course, the Blessing in the Skies album had... Um Kurt, I know, wrote the songs on it, and you had Mike Howe as, as the singer. So how did the dynamic of the band change? Because I don't think Kurt was actually pictured as actually being a member of the band, even though he wrote most of the material on it. Uh, how did the dynamic change from yeah. the first record to the second? Yeah, the second one that you did. Well, I think, uh, you, you know, Kurt pretty much, um, he pretty much wrote all that stuff. Um we're going back a few years, so I apologize if I'm not giving somebody credit where, where it's due. But, um, I, you know, I worked very closely with Kurt on the first record. And the second record, Blessing in Disguise, again, it was uh, Mark Dodson was producing it. 
so it, the dynamic for me was a little bit different. Um, but as far as the band went, you know, other than having somebody else kind of calling the shots as far as how the record was going to be made, um, the dynamic of the band was, was pretty much the same. Um, yeah, they, you know, any time a band goes from being a local band without playing around much to going out and touring the world and then coming back in to make a second record, there's always a change because their perspective is different. Yeah, I, I thought the Blessing in Disguise album was, like a lot of bands, what'll happen is they'll change the singer and they'll change the sound a lot. I think they got yeah. Mike in. I, th I think Mike was a really good singer. I don't think the, the actual sound of that album changed a, a whole lot from the first two. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm sorry. I think I got I got a little confused on, on you there. Um, the, the third record is where the new singer came in. Yeah, and yeah. The dynamic um, between the, the second and the uh, second and the third record. Yeah. Um, that that was pretty. You know, we did that one. The difference between the third record and the second record was that we did the third record in Philadelphia. The other, the first two records were both done at the same studio in Seattle. So there was a little difference. Uh, as far as um, we were all living in in an apartment together while we did it, you know, and, and again, there was, it's a third record, so there was some difference there. And a new singer makes a big difference. But again, Kurt, you know, he, he really was, you know, he was really the guy. And, um, and so things didn't really change too much other than we had a new singer. Being involved in the Seattle scene, now you were involved with the Mother Love Bone Apple album, correct? 
correct. Yeah. Now, was that kind of a disappointment to you that, you know, after all that was done and, and, and the vibe, and it's really good songs on that as well, that, that uh, you know, the fact that we lost Andy, was that, you know, kind of a huge blow to, to you? Well, it was a huge blow to anybody who knew Andy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's just, it was, he was, a, he was an incredibly unique, talented person. And I just had a little tiny slice of time with him. You know, the other guys in the band and the guys who went on to become Pearl Jam and, and actually the whole music community here at the time who knew Andy, you know, uh, it was, it was a massive loss and, uh, you know, just irreplaceable. The guy was, was one of a kind and, you know, if he'd have made it, he would have been huge. You know, he would have been a huge star. He just had that personality and he, you know, he was uh, an amazing person. So yeah, it was a very huge uh, loss to anyone who knew him. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing when you look back at some of the videos with him and stuff, and and he really did. He had that really that star power, that charisma about him. And you know, people, you know, when when Pearl Jam really broke and stuff, and people thought that was like the greatest thing. And and I would play him some on the Mother Love Bone stuff, and they, you know, be you know, what is this? And at first they'd be like, oh, this is you know, this is crap or whatever. And then you explain what it was, and all of a sudden, oh, it was really good. But but that guy really, he wrote some really awesome songs and and you know it wasn't the direction that that scene is known for but um he just yeah he was just an incredible songwriter and i can even remember hearing a interview with chris cornell talking about how with them living together how they would kind of do these songwriting competitions just the two of them each go to their own room and just start writing songs and he said he was amazed at the output that andy would do and, and how fearless the guy was with writing songs yeah and that's all true I, um i remember sitting in a rehearsal one time with those guys and we finished the rehearsal and um, it was early in the day, I think. And I was driving, we were all kind of living in the same neighborhood and about, I don't know, three, four hours later, I was driving down the street kind of near the rehearsal studio and here's Andy walking down the street with his keyboard under his, under his arm. <laughs> and I, I, so I pulled over and I go, Andy, you need a ride? He goes, yeah. You know, what have you been doing? He goes, oh, I just stayed at the studio or at the rehearsal place for a little longer. I said, well, what were you doing? He goes, well, I wrote a record. I wrote another album. <laughs> 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 That's just how he was, you know, and uh, yeah, he, he was, again, you know, there's so many people who knew him so much better than I did. Uh, Chris is one of them, and of course the rest of the guys in the band, but, you know, he, he just, the, the 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 part of him that I knew was just so incredible, and and his the talent was was amazing, and he was funny too. I mean, studio stories from making that record. We made it down in uh, Sausalito, and uh, you know, there's so many funny things with him in that in, in that studio. So. Yeah, you look back at your discography, and you—I mean, it's amazing the kind of the, the variation of things, or, or sometimes you see kind of a, a little bit of a theme, and then you then you get the curveball kind of thing. So it's do you do you like the mixing it up and not being pigeonholed into like one particular thing? Yeah, that was always important to me. Still is that um, especially in the in the beginning when you know when you start out with a band called Metal Church, you know you sort of start getting you start becoming the metal guy, you know, and I thought it was really important for me as well as for the metal bands that I worked with that I, 
that I did as many as wide a variety as I could get away with because that way I could bring elements from other types of music into uh, the metal bands I worked with. You know, yeah. I just I didn't I didn't get stuck in a channel someplace. I could I could branch out. It's a little tough when you do get kind of kind of known for one type of music. It's it's really, for instance, you know, I couldn't go from a metal church record to you know a, a jazz record or something. It would be hard for me to do that. Yeah. Um, I, I could if I really wanted to, but you know, it just I, I tried to I tried to be out on the fringes as much as I could on yeah. the uh, fringes of that type of music. Yeah. But you did go from metal charts to doing a sort of mix a lot, but you did bring metal charts along with you to do something on it. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I, I believe Sir Mix a Lot was before Metal Church. Um, I think I, I started working with uh, with Sir Mix a Lot. I think. Uh, I think I think I worked with with him first, and then Metal Church was right after that. I I just I strictly engineered Sir Mix-a-Lot stuff. Yeah, but most of his stuff was brought to me on a four track cassette. <laughs> that was his entire recording, and I would just mix stuff. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, now I was, you know, it's interesting you talk about how you bring in stuff in because when I told a few, you know, metalhead friends that we were going to be talking to you, of course, some of the older guys all said the band you would know they were going to say. And, you know, but then a lot of the younger guys, almost all of them said the same band in the same album. And that was prong they came right out prong, the cleansing. And uh, <laughs> so when you talk about bringing stuff in, you know, I think that's like one of those albums that definitely has that. You know, there's another influence that comes in on that album, and um, yeah. were you kind of were you a big part of the changing of that sound for that one? Well, you know, Tommy and I really uh, we got along and still do get along really well. I don't see him very much anymore, but um, when I do, you know, it's it, we we were, it, you know, it was pretty much me and him making those records. And of course, there was other people in the band, but you know, Tommy was you know, guitar player, singer, songwriter, you know, so he and I worked side by side quite a bit mm. and we just got along really, really well. And so I did two records with him and both of them are, again, two of my favorite records. I, I, they're really special records to me. You know, I, the other, the second record I did with him, Rude Awakening, is still one of my favorite records to listen back to. Mm. It didn't do that well, but, um, that was a really underappreciated record. That record had just had razor edge to it. It had some of the industrial stuff that I had been doing with um, uh, White Zombie uh, around the same time. But it, it, the, the guitar tone and you know just the edge of that, the, the edge that that record had is still you know I still love listening to that one.
Yeah. That's kind of a cool thing because, you know, we talk to a lot of different producers and, and a lot of them will just be like, I don't, I don't, I don't really listen to anything that I've done. So it's cool when you talk to a producer and there's albums that they really still like hold to their heart. And so it's, you know, and that's definitely one of those ones I think that, that is a very, very cool album and maybe even a little bit ahead of its time for when it came out. Um, I think so. You know, um, it, it may, it really may have been. It wasn't, I don't think we were doing anything incredibly new. Mm. I mean, it was relatively new, but um, the some of the some of the, the I'm talking about from the production side of things mm. more than the songwriting side of things. But um, I I really think that you know the way Tommy, you know his vision on the whole thing, just really it, to me was really really was uh, um, was really good, and and I just I just liked the way the way that record came down, went together, and again, um, had a really good time doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Terry, you were obviously involved in, um, you know, the, the Soundgarden albums, uh, Louder Than Love and Bad Motorfinger. Now, around, 90, uh -huh. around 1990, 91, when you did the Bad Motorfinger album, did you have any inclination at all of how that scene was going to explode? Um, no. No. I think uh, it was starting to take off by the time I did Bad Motorfinger. It, it was just just beginning to take off when we did louder than love it was you know i think i could be speaking out of turn here but i i think soundgarden may have been the first you know of that generation of seattle bands to get signed mm -hmm. and uh, out of seattle <clears throat> so it was really kind of a it was a special thing it was kind of a new thing um and by the time we did that motor finger some of the other bands had been signed and there was a lot of energy starting to pick up with matter of fact i remember sitting in the studio uh in a, in a studio uh, kind of out in the woods outside of seattle um you know about 40 minutes out of downtown and uh eddie vetter came up to play i think he I think he was playing the first three mixes from their first record at that time and it was the first time we'd heard that record and all of us of course were just pretty well blown away by how good it was. Um, but, um, you know, that it, things were starting to happen around the time we were making a bad motor finger. So, um, we didn't, you know, there wasn't, a, there wasn't a big, like sense of a big wave of stuff happening, you know, but it was sort of like the, you know, the faucet was being turned on a little bit, a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> no. Did you have to do anything like anything new or unique, or was it? Did you find it any kind of uh, initially difficult when you did something like a band like Soundgarden, where you know with Kim's guitar had he had you know loved doing different tunings and down tunings and trying to make the balance between Kim's guitar and the rhythm section and all that? Did that you know kind of have to take any kind of special steps with how you did things? No, I didn't do anything that different. I didn't mix those records, so you know as far as balancing the, the final balances, um, I wasn't involved with that um and as far as the tunings and all the the you know time signatures and and the the, the guts of the uh of the songs like that i didn't get too involved with that because i did, my my job i thought with them was to make sure that they were hearing themselves in the song from from the very basic tracks all the way to the end they were hearing the song the way they envisioned it to be to, to sound, so that they'd be inspired as they did their their overdubs. Mm. And and really, you know, I, I felt my job was was to 
make sure, you know, was to define the path that we were going to go down and then make sure we stayed on that path and didn't stray from it. And uh, so when it came to uh, the rest of the stuff, I just proceeded as normal. You know, I didn't think too much about how how things were going to blend or mix or anything like that because the way I work, it, they, they tend to do that anyway. You know, we, mm. you know we're, we're hopefully listening to stuff from the beginning to the end with the correct balances. Mm, yeah. I mean, just, I remember just, you know, first listening to that album and just thinking about just how dense that whole sound was, you know, and just all the music, just, just, just this incredibly just sludgy, dense sound. And then Chris's vocals just cutting through everything. And, and it just, it just, yeah. just amazing, amazing sound. And then you find out that Kim is using, you know, an old guild guitar to do it all too. And it's like, are you kidding me? This is, <laughs> you know, I, I can't well, believe that. I think the first, I think louder than love. Um, right around when we first started working together, Kim's Kim had that SG. Uh, I think he had an SG, uh, but his his guitar rig was a Music Man 65 watt head with Hero the bass player's old 15 inch single speaker cabinet. That was <laughs> that was his rig right there. So. <laughs> Um, I think for the second record we got a Marshall and you know got a, a different some different stuff, but that was that was his sound. And it's all about you know with any great guitar player like him, you know it's all about their hands anyway. They could play through you know a plastic guitar and, and they would make it sound good just because you know the way their hands work. Yeah, yeah. And I thought one of the other kind of underrated things about that band was the actual you know the rhythm section and especially you know as far as the drums and that's just that really amazing timekeeping that was there just just giving that yeah. solid bass and i don't think people give you know give those guys kind of enough credit for what they did behind it because it seems to all focus on chris and kim yeah well you, you know i was i had some video from when we made bad motor finger when we were doing the basic tracks and um i was looking at that uh a while ago and uh, you know i don't typically listen to the records i make for quite a while after i've made them because I've heard them so many times, it's hard to, you know, listen to them. But I, I was um, I was watching some video of the basic tracks of Bad Motor Finger, and I had the camera on Matt, and I was just, it was amazing to me how good he was and how, how little I knew it at the time, you know? Mm. At the time, it was just a bunch of friends, you know, because we really were, we all kind of lived in the same neighborhood. So it was just a, a bunch of friends, you know, making a record basically. But then you go back and look at it, and it's like Matt was a monster even yeah. back then, yeah. and he's even he's even more amazing now. You know, it's just it's amazing how good he was. And Ben, you know, who came in on the on the Bad Motorfinger record, you know, he again just amazing how good he was too at doing what he and he wrote wrote some of the songs on that record too. Um, so he was really well rounded. Mm in all ways also and so it, it was pretty amazing yeah and it didn't totally kind of a really kind of a different bass player stylistically than than hero was too oh very much so yeah 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 so so terry i just want to ask you about a I know you're also talking about monster drummers there you worked with gene hoagland on the dark angel album time does not heal which i love um that's a very very intricate album lots of riffs time changes was that a difficult album to record because of that no, again, you know, the time changes and, and all that, it's, it, I don't get involved with, with a whole lot of that. Um, for me, it's like, 
I hear the songs in rehearsal, and then we just go in and we just try to get the best performances we can get. And, um, of course, back then it's all using tape, so you have to perform. You can't get it 70% and then let Pro Tools fix it all up. It's all, you know, it's all the real thing. The most we would do is we would do three or four takes of the drums, and then we would, if there was a, a, a section that was better in one of the other takes, we would just chop a big section out and, and replace it. But it really was all about just getting performances. And again, when you get a drummer like Gene, it's not hard to do. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, again, you know, he's another one that um, I haven't seen. I've seen him a couple times since we made that record. We just run into each other on the road someplace. But he's another one that was always really good, but has just become great, you know, yeah. and um, obviously he's become great. And we had a lot of fun making that record too. That was, we did that one in, uh, Southern California, I believe. Big Huntington Beach. Okay. I think we made, made that one down there. Okay. I remember that the label on the album at the time said it was like 300 riffs, uh, nine songs, 68 minutes or something. <laughs> and I remember, I remember listening to it and I was like, holy moly, there's no way I'm going to take all this in in one go. <laughs> it was just all, so many different time changes. And like all the yeah. the lyrics were like a book. <laughs> yeah, I, and I don't I don't remember I don't remember doing a lot of uh, I, I I remember doing so, I, we must have made that record pretty fast too because I don't remember a ton about making the record. Um, I do remember Gene coming in. I think it was I don't I think it was right after we finished the studio and I, I think he was playing someplace. I went to see him see his drum set up and. The only thing he was so excited, and the only thing he was excited about is he bought a new propeller that he could put on his drum set that he could hit a little little brass propeller or something. <laughs> you know? And uh, uh, but yeah, that was um, that that record. I, I I remember some of it. I don't remember anything tedious about it. Stay in it for 
when you got hooked up with Dream Theater, did you feel like that was a stretch thing, a little bit different than what you've been doing with kind of the prog aspect of that band, or were you ready to, to dive into something like that? Well, you know, I'd always been a fan of prog, and, you know, I mean, uh, just a... Uh, that that type of metal I, I've always loved, mm. and um, getting back to what we talked about, time signatures. I knew right away when I went out there for a couple of weeks before we did the record to, and I, um, you know, to hear rehearsals, and and I was staying with Mike Portnoy during that time, and uh, so during the day before we rehearsed, um, I recognized that the music was very complicated, <laughs> and. Uh, um, so I said, Mike, you know, we got some time to kill here. Why don't you just give me some time signatures for these songs so I can kind of keep and kind of write some of this stuff down so I can kind of keep track a little bit. And he goes, okay, measure one is seven, eight. Measure two is three, four. <laughs> <laughs> Every measure was a different time signature. <laughs> I'm like, oh, forget it. <laughs> you know, let's just go do it. Um, but it, that, was, uh, that was a lot of fun, too. We did that at the same studio in Philadelphia that I did Blessing in Disguise in and uh, believe, I can't remember, I did them back to back, I can't remember which one came first I, yeah, I can't remember which one I did first but um, we did that record, that first the Dream Theater record uh, we did that in three weeks, record and mix wow, yeah I mean it was for, for as complex as that thing was it, it still kind of blows me away how fast we did that record yeah, it's just as well they can play. <laughs> so in, in, it's just as well they can play. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, when you when you, when you get guys that can play well, you know it's it's um it, it makes my job way 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 easier. So yeah, yeah. Um, it's really a matter of just catching a moment at that point. Yeah. So, now, were you surprised, you know, obviously now you talk about being a fan of prog, so you know that, that a lot of prog bands usually have a very niche fan base. So were you kind of really surprised how broadly accepted that album was when it came out? Um, I don't know if I'm ever surprised anymore, you know, because so, some some records that I think are going to be, are, you know, are, are going to be really big don't make it, and some that, you know, I think are going to be a niche project you know, find popularity. And, you know, the, the, I really, I really never surprised anymore. It, you know, it just, I just try to do, you know, make the record to where we're all happy with it and let everything else fall into place. But I was very, um, I was very happy for them. I know that. I mean, they, they really talented, nice guys. And, and, um, so I was really, really happy that, that it did get out there and, and do well. I think the second record, the second record they did, might have been the one that sort of really broke them out. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I've always been a big believer that if you you know you build your fan base slowly and then they stay with you for a long time. So by putting that first record out, it may not have gone out and and you know, tore up the charts or anything, but by doing that, they built themselves a really strong, loyal fan base so mm -hmm. that everything they did after that, their fan base would always buy. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now, you did the Overkill album, Years of Decay, before you did uh, Cowboys from Hell. And of course, Overkill mm -hmm. at the time, they had only one guitar player. Do you think doing that album helped you when you did Cowboys from Hell to get that heavy sound? Um, I don't know. You know, I don't know if it helped or not. Um, I don't think so. I mean, 
Pantera was again, you know, that was they they were you know a real special band, of course, and um, so I don't think if I'd never done a record before I, I did that one, I don't know if that would have made a big difference. I, I maybe I'm I'm being naive about that, but uh, at the time, I, you know, I just had my head down and I was just going from project to project and um, trying to find bands that. I like the music, but more importantly, I like the people mm. because we spend so much time together. I, I just didn't want to do records where I didn't like, you know, or it was just an uncomfortable situation. And I've been really lucky in that. Uh, I, I really pretty much um, made that work every time. But Overkill, those, again, those we did those up in Stanford, Connecticut. Cowboys from Hell was mixed at that studio. And that's the reason why I mixed it there is because I've been doing a lot of stuff up there so i was kind of familiar with the situation up there okay yeah there's definitely some producers that tend to work with one coast of the u.s or one particular you know area but it, you know you seem to switch over from doing west coast stuff and you know a lot of people there's a kind of like a west coast personality then you're able to switch over and and do kind of more of the uh, i don't know obviously i'm a boston guy and we tend to be a little more of that you know, very do everything fast kind of anal thing on the East Coast. And so you were able to switch over and work with Dream Theater and with Overkill and stuff. And have you found that really easy? Is it just really the personalities in the band that make it click for you? Uh, well, yeah, I think it's the personalities in the band and and how they combine with my personality. I mean, I live in Seattle, so I'm not, I'm not really West Coast or East Coast. I grew up in the Midwest, so I've been, you know, in a lot of places. And, and you know, really... The, the air, you know, the area that, that you live in, the, the, if the people come from that area, it makes a bit of a difference. Definitely a Tommy Prong personality is different than a, you know, than a Dimebag personality or different than uh, a Kim Dial personality. Mm -hmm. You know, those are radically different personalities. But my job is to, is to work with every personality and get the best out of those people. You know, it's really, I have to, I sort of have to be a chameleon and, and uh, sort of, drop into the, whatever that personality is and so, so I'm able to communicate with them because my job is really communication you know I mean it really it really comes down to that it's you know it's listening to what people want and trying to achieve it and at the same time trying to make it so I communicate those thoughts to people who've never heard the music before mm, yeah every producer has their different vision even as to you know what a producer does and stuff so it sounds to me that overall, more what you do, it's not that songwriting or having that, you know, Bob Ezrin vision that you're going to mold the band into, but it sounds to me that you're more like that producer that really listens to what the band's trying to do, listens to what they want to do, and you might have some input, but really your thing is to let them realize their vision in the best way possible. Would you Would you agree with that? Yeah, I've always felt it's, it's an air record. It's not my record. And it was really important to me that I was as invisible as possible. You know, I was a, more of a medium for them hmm. uh, to record their record. And I never was the kind of producer, I never saw myself or wanted to be the kind of producer that would have, you know, my stamp on it. I didn't want to be, you know, this, you know, this is the Phil Spector sound, you know. Hmm. I wanted the band to get, you know, it, it's their, you know, they're the ones that are, writing the music, they're putting their asses on the line, you know, day in and day out on the road trying to make this thing work, you know. So to me, it was, it was, you know, I wanted it. And, and as you can see, almost every record I do, 
I, I make sure that the band has a co-production credit. Yeah. And um, because it's really a, co- a collaborative effort, and um, I, I really wanted to, to make sure that whatever happens, that they get the credit for it. You know, they get credit for, you know, for, the, for being the talented people that they are. And I don't take projects that, um, in my opinion, don't have talented people. You know, mm-hmm. I think that it would be hard for me to start with, you know, uh, four blank guys and build that into something. You know, um, I have to have something to start with and I have to have people who know how to play and have good creative ideas and then I can help embellish that. Yeah, and I think that's really just kind of a neat way to do it, too, because I think when you know you do a series of albums with bands, you see the progression that's a natural growth of that band's musical experience, but not somebody trying to put other crap onto them as well. And I think it lends a nice continuity. And then when you have bands where you might do that one-off, like you know doing like the Chastain album, I mean, that album isn't wholesalely different from the next album, that there's a, a good chunk of the band personality is represented there. And I think that's nicer for the listeners than having this crazy-ass album that comes out of nowhere, and then the next album after that, the band goes right back to what they're doing, and they always reflect back and go, ah, I don't know why the hell we did that album. So-and-so told us to do it or whatever. So, yeah, I, I kind of yeah. like the way that you do it with letting the band speak first. these days with, with again with computers and plugins that everybody sort of has the same the same instrument really to play mm. um, it kind of lends to things starting to sound similar to begin with and so you know if, if, if you're able to make the band you know keep the band personality as apparent as possible then you sort of nullify some of the um, some of the things that technically that make the bands similar. Right. Um, I don't use a lot of plugins, or, or I, I use some, of course, like everybody. But I try to keep things as organic, I guess, as possible, so that you know the sound of an amp 
you know, has a particular sound. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's important to me. I love the technology and I, you know, I, I use it when I feel it's, you know, it, it's an advantage to use it, but I don't yeah. just default to it. Yeah, I know the people when they come in the studio here and I'll offer them, well, I've got all kinds of amp sims or I've got, you know, tubes or I've got a, you know, JC120. I've got, you know, different things from the playthrough. And they, you know, initially they get drawn to, ooh, I can play this, you know, Plexi or a Mesa or whatever. But as, as soon as they do a regular, you know, real tube amp, they're like, yeah, yeah, we're going to go with this. And of course, I always take like a clean, you know, unbroken sound as well that I can reamp for them later to thicken up or whatever. But everyone seems to, even though with a million amp sims available, they always drift right back if they have a real tube amp to go to. They go for that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And it, the same goes, for me anyway, the same goes with outboard gear, you know, with compressors and equalizers. You know, there's a lot of really good ones out there, um, uh, plugins out there, mm. but I still, you know, you still there still is a personality to to you know you know physical pieces of gear that mm. that add color that you know it's subtle and it may be you know me being a bit too nitpicky I don't know but it, you know in my mind it's important. Yeah, no, there's definitely, I mean, you get some like those old UAD compressors. I mean, there's a magic to those things. And even some of the old initial digital delays and reverbs and things, I don't care. You can't reproduce them any other way. There's just something about using that physical piece of equipment that can't be beat. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Several, you know, dozens of people spontaneously combust each year. It's just not really widely reported. Well, yeah. So before Richie spontaneously combust, I think that me and Terry need to stop our gear discussion and let Richie get back to asking some questions. So Terry, I just want to ask you a question about uh, Pantera. When you got to record them in the studio, um, how prepared were they when it came to the actual songs? What, like how finished were they? Because over the years you hear that they've gone in and they've written songs in the studio like from scratch. Would they come in with most of the album written or half the album written and then just jam and, and do the songs there and then or, or what way did it work well um cowboys the first record i did with them was was completely written before i showed up okay after that every other record i did with them was basically written in the studio obviously they had riffs or rhythms or part you know pieces of the song but we would always go in and just take whatever that you know that riff that Don might have had or a rhythm that Vinny had and, and we would um to start with that and then build the song around that. And again, we were using tape, so we would just get an intro figured out. We record the intro live and then they'd figure out whatever the next part was going to be. And we'd punch that whole, the whole band in, you know, so we just sort of Frankenstein the song together until we had a whole song and then we'd make a, a cassette of it. <laughs> and, uh, and then we'd drive around for, for part of the day listening to it. Mm -hmm. And, that way we'd be able to see if, uh, you know, if they liked it or if they wanted to make any changes. But that's pretty much how those records were all, were all done. They were all pretty constructed in the studio. Yeah, now, of course, they, they keep bringing out the reissues now. And when they brought out a vulgar display of power, they had a, a bonus track on it called Piss. Do you have any memories? Mm -hmm. uh, did were you surprised with that? Like, oh, there's another track. I forgot all about that. Or did you actually remember them doing it? You know, I I totally forgotten about that song um, when it came out. I, and I, when I heard it, I remembered it. Yeah. But uh, we we basically, I think, and again, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure about this that 
when we made those records, we made just the amount of songs that were going to go on the record. So the, we didn't do a lot of extra songs. This was one of them, but it, there were a lot of a lot of demos, and of course, Dime would go, you know, after the studio every night, he'd go write about six <laughs> or ten more songs with people just goofing <laughs> around in his little in his uh, four track room or whatever he called it. But uh, yeah, as far as studio recordings, we would pretty much record just what was going to go on the record. Okay. Mm. One of the recent albums that you did over the last few years was uh, the Loaded album with Duff McKagan. Now, with this, did you know Duff back in the day from Seattle and he just naturally asked you to be involved with that or was that just some kind of off-the-cuff thing that came together? Um, I didn't know Duff back in the, in the early days, back before he went to L.A. and started Guns N' Roses. Um, I, I met him, I ran into him a few times after Guns N' Roses, probably in the last 10 years because... <laughs> I spent, a, you know, especially in the later years, and I, you know, I, I go from Seattle to LA a lot to work. So there's, there's, a, you know, everybody flies kind of the same airline to the same airport from here. Yeah. And a couple times I, I would run into Duff on that flight, and we talk, and he go, oh, we should do a record together, blah blah blah, and you know, I, it never worked out. As a matter of fact. You know, he wanted me to do that first Velvet Revolver record, and I couldn't do it. But then, a few years ago, I ran into him again some, um, somewhere. Um, oh, I was doing a, a, a record with a band called Red Theory down at Henson in Los Angeles. Yeah. And the, the drummer Loaded was in there, and he and I, you know, he's another Northwest guy, and we were talking, he goes, you should do Loaded's next record. And... I said, well, yeah, maybe, you know, and so Duff was in town, so Duff came down, and we talked about it, and that's that's where that came, how that came about. Huh. You know, it's got kind of a real, almost like a DIY, kind of earthy, crunchy feel. It's, it's a lot, sounds a lot different than a lot of the uh, the albums that, that were released around that same time. I mean, was that pretty much done as a really, like, everything, they, they kind of had the songs already all put together, and it was just coming in, having fun, laying them down, or was it more of a longer project? No, it was fairly quick, and they did um, uh, Duff and uh, Isaac, and I'm not sure if Mike Squires and, and um, Jeff Ralph, I'm, I think they all kind of would go down to L.A., or they... You know, Duff kind of lives back and forth between both both places mm -hmm. here, but they would get together and they'd write the stuff. So when they when they hit the studio, the songs were written, and so it was just a matter of again recording and getting you know just making the record at that point, and it went by pretty quick. Hmm. Yeah, it is kind of a different sounding album. It's I don't think it's everybody you know grasps onto it, but it is it has that really just kind of a really cool different album. So yeah, I, I kind of dug it when I heard it. Yeah. 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 So, Terry, another huge album you worked on was um, the White Zombie record. Right. That was, uh, like, huge over here in the States. Do, do you have any memories about working on that record? Like, because Rob Zombie, of course, has gone on to have a, a very big career in, like, filmmaking and in music. Mm -hmm. Again, that was another uh, really fun record to make, Rob, and I, uh, you know, are still good friends. I don't, again, don't see him a whole lot anymore, but uh, when I do, it's good times. Um <laughs> That record, we had a John Tempesta was drumming with a band for the first time, and Rob wanted to use some loops. You know, um, it started out we were going to use the loops as like a click track basically for the drums. You know, so we had Charlie Clouser put together some rough kind of industrial sounding loops, and I say we, I think Rob 
pretty much instigated all that. But um, to put together some, um, you know, these industrial sort of loops based on the um, the demos of the songs, and so we use those basically like a click track to record the drums. And it sounded so cool together that um, we just decided to send the drum tracks back to Charlie and have him make more um, involved and more intricate loops based on the drum tracks. So it just became more uh, industrial, I guess is the word, or just more loop-oriented than I think it started out being. And it just um, just kept sounding thicker and thicker and more interesting and there's just more to listen to all the time too it just sort of built on itself and that was a very involved record to make from a technical side because we had again we were using tape um and we had we had three 24 track tape machines synced together one of them was the band 24 tracks had the band on it 24 tracks were just all loops (laughs) and then the final 24 track was vocals and we didn't use all the loops, but Charlie made a whole bunch of different loops for us to choose from, you know, so we had a whole real, you know, 24 tracks of stereo loops and sound effects and, you know, drum support sounds. It was very, very complicated record to mix, especially. Yeah, it is pretty cool when you listen back to it. I mean, as a musician listening back, you, you just start, you know, you're trying to listen to it and you, and you really start going, what the hell is going on here? And it really does mess with your head trying to pick it apart. I mean, you know, the average person listening, they get the beat of the groove and they're like, all right, this is cool. They move on. But I sit there going, what the heck did they do? This is, this is really screwed up. <laughs> My feeling on that record was we, we were recording the drums in a relatively dry room. And during that time, and maybe even still, Rock drums, you know, need a big, roaring, ambient room to really feel the power, right? Mm. And our, the room we were working in wasn't small, and it was one of, one of my favorite rooms at the time, but it wasn't an incredibly live room. So I felt like we were going to use all that, all those loops and all those noises and, and um, chaos. It was going to create the same kind of chaos that a big, loud, ambient room would would create hmm. so basically went with kind of dry drums and then created that the roar of the room out of all these loops and that was kind of the that was kind of sort of the, the direction we were trying to go with that one oh yeah it's, it is it is really cool
Yeah, so Terry, I'm just looking at the albums you did in the 90s. You did like industrial albums with White Zombie, Deftones, Prong. Uh, you did new metal stuff with Korn. You did rap rock with Limp Bizkit. And of course, you did Pantera, who are like the antithesis of all of that stuff. <laughs> Do you remember getting a lot of mail, not hate mail as such, but fans were going, how can you do this band? Like They're nothing like the, the band that we love. Well, I no, I, I never really got any, you know, I, there might have been reviews here and there where people liked it or they didn't. Um, I never got any direct communication about that kind of stuff. I mean, certain, you know, some bands will, you know, would give me some grief for working with some other type of band, you know. Um, but I didn't really, didn't really care, you know, because every one of those records, I, I, I did them because, again, because the people that were involved and, um, I just, I, I love the people that I was working with and the music, you know, music always evolves anyway. And, you know, my goal was to make a good record with good music. You know, I wasn't too concerned about, you know, hurting anybody's feelings as far as whether they like the style or not. Of course, you know, everybody wants everyone to like what they do, but I, I for me, it was, it was just, um, I was just glad to be working with the people I was working with. Yeah, now I'm looking at the 90s discography here, and the one thing that stands out to me is, like, there's no album on it that I could say is like Metal Church, like a tr traditional metal album. Was there any offers that you got in, in that period that you just couldn't do for scheduling? Yeah, there, there was probably a bunch of them. Um, I'm trying to think... Um, ones that I turned down for scheduling. Uh, I can't re really remember of any that, any that I had turned down for scheduling. I did have, I guess there was one, sort of, but when we were doing, oh, which one? One of the Deftones records, I think it was the, the, the we call it Minerva, or it's the self-titled one with the flowers on the front. Okay. Um, it's the one right after White Pony. They were in rehearsals for that record, and they wanted me to do it. And um, Limp Bizkit was also in rehearsals at the same time for um, their, it would have been their fourth night, the third one that I, that I did the one right after Hot Dog Flavored Water. And so I was, I was going to rehearsals, you know, for both those projects. And I was just hoping that one would delay long enough so I could do them both. But of course, as it turns out, they both were ready to go in at the same time, and so I had to make a decision. And um, you know, I just I just chose Deftones because I'd been working with with them longer, and it just seemed like that was the right move to make. And so it took us a long time to make that record, not in the studio necessarily, but just sort of you know in and out of the studio. But it took almost a year, I think. Wow. wow. And um, during that time, Fred was. And the rest of the guys, not Wes wasn't in Limp Bizkit at that time, but they were working on, I think the record was called Results May Vary, but um, they had recorded 15 songs. And as soon as I finished up with Deftones, Fred called me and he said, hey, we got a new guitar player. We're going to take him out live with us. Um, can you come in and record a couple of songs so we can put it on the record? And that way the new guitar player has you know, a couple songs he worked on on the record, so, you know, whatever. And I said, sure, and went down and did, did those two songs, and Fred liked them so much, he goes, well, let's do some more. <laughs> I, ended up, I ended up doing 12 songs, you know, <laughs> and I think they used 
six of mine and six of the ones that were done before I came on, on that results may vary record. Okay. But that's the only scheduling issue I remember having. All right. Um, I just want to ask you about working with uh, Max Cavalera on the Soulfly records. Now, I just finished his book, and um, he seems to be just, like, driven by music. Music means everything to him. Um, mm -hmm. do, you, do you remember him being like that when you were recording, that it was just full-on experimentation, just that the song was the, the be-all and end-all of everything? Well, he was all, yeah, I mean, I think music and family are the two things that drive him, you know. Um, and, you know, I think I only mixed his records up until this most current Soulfly record. This is the first one I actually recorded and mixed with him. Mm-hmm. I first met him during uh, the Deftones record we were doing Around the Fur, and he came in to do a song with them called Head Up, which we recorded live, basically. Um, took one day. But, he, um, you know, and, and of course, when I was mixing stuff, he would be in and out when, when I was mixing. You know, he wasn't there all the time, but Max was always driven by that. I mean, he, he, he is, you know, driven by his music for sure, and um, doing this most recent Soulfly record was really fun, also because his son played drums, mm -hmm. and um, I think, you know, that gave him so much satisfaction to see his son playing drums on his record, and I, I think it was um, his first, uh, it was the first record he played drums on, too, Okay, and the first time he'd been in the studio playing drums, so... It, that was it. Max, Max, and that whole um, and his whole family. That again, those are very special people to me. Also, very good friends. That um, and very, very unique, special people. And just wrapping it up, um, you know, you've had a hell of a career. I mean, I wish I could have done half the albums that you did. And if, you know, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, "Yeah, you can't," you know, you won't produce any more albums after you know after today. I mean, would you look back and be you know able to be very satisfied with what you've put down? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I wouldn't be satisfied with someone telling me that. <laughs> um, well, that's good no, to hear. I, I, I'm, uh, I'm actually sitting in my whole 80% finished um, a studio here at home where I'm going to be mixing records out of this place so I can stay home a little bit more. But no, I I mean, the challenge is, is for me is still out there. I mean, I still don't feel like I've made the perfect record. And until I do, I, you know, I'm not going to be satisfied at all. You mm. know, um, I'm very, very grateful and, and happy with what's happened in the past and feel very fortunate to work with the people I've worked with. And also probably more satisfied that some of these records have really stood the test of time and are still appreciated and, you know, they weren't disposable at yeah. all. That's always been a goal. But, no, I'm not, I'm always looking forward. So I'm, I'm always looking for that perfect record, you know. Of course, I'll never get it, but if I, if I don't look <laughs> for it, you know, what's the point? You That's know? right. It's just like guitar players, we're always looking for that perfect tone. We never get it, but we keep on trying, yeah? Yeah. I know. One final yeah. question from me, Terry. Um, if there's one band out there at the minute that you'd love to work with, what would the band be? Uh the next one I'm in the studio with, really, you know, uh, I get calls every day for stuff. And I think, you know, the thing the, the thing that's hardest for me right now is there's so many great young bands out there, which is what I really like. I really like working with young bands. And a lot of them aren't coming to me because they think 
that, you know, oh, I've done all these records, I'm going to be, you know, uh, you know, I won't be able to work with him or I won't be able to afford him. That's not true at all. You know, my thing is I always want to find that next, the next Pantera or the next uh, Prong or any of these. You know, I, I really love finding, you know, uh, bands that haven't that haven't had the chance to to be heard yet. Mm. And so that's really that that's that's what I'm focusing on is trying to trying to find you know the next great new young band signed or unsigned yeah that's great to hear that is absolutely yeah tell you we we really appreciate you know you coming on i know that a lot of our audience really loves when we talk to people that are behind the scenes whether it's producers or a and r people or whatever else but i think it's also been cool for richie and i to also let people know that you know you're more than just the guy that did pantera that you've got a huge catalog behind you and you know stuff all over the place so for us personally it's cool to let people know that about terry date so um we do appreciate you coming on the show and spending so much time with us today oh it's my pleasure thanks all right terry thanks, we'd, thanks for coming on yeah we'd love to have you back anytime you get something new coming out we'd love to have have you come on and talk about it or whatever all right well thank you very much and uh let's see the, the most current one is miss may i you know and soulfly mm-hmm. uh, those those just came out fairly recently and of course bring the horizon which is another kind of a left turn for me mm, yeah definitely that is different well i mean you got the prog element in there as well but it is a whole different spin on it especially with the eight string guitars and stuff too but yeah very very different yeah. stuff yeah <laughs> awesome yeah. All right, okay. well, it's been great talking to you, and uh, have a good rest of the day. Okay, thanks. All right, thanks, thanks, Terry. Thanks, Terry. Bye. Bye. There you go. Our talk with producer Terry Day. Hope you guys enjoyed that one. Guy certainly has been involved in amazing, amazing albums out there. And I truly, I believed it when I told him that I wished I could have been involved in half the releases that he's been involved with. Guy's definitely had a great career. Continued on, especially now, you know, brand new Soulfly out. So Terry Date still well, well in the game, cranking out great metal albums for all of us to enjoy. So lots of music on the show today, just to run down everything in case you don't know a piece. Of course, kicked it off, Hell's Chopper with Burn the Witches. That was our track of the week. And then going into Terry's interview, we had Of Unsound Mind by Metal Church, Prong with Face Value, Dark Angel with Act of Contrition, Soldiers of the Flame by Chastain with my buddy Leather Leone on vocals, and we wrapped it all up with White Zombie with Supercharger Heaven off of the Terry Date produced Astro Creep 2000. So lots of Terry Date production work in the show. See how varied this guy is. Like I said, holy crap. I mean, the career this guy has had. So hope you enjoyed it this week be back at you again next week like i said i kind of teased it a bit two great bands coming up next week for kind of that middle of summer summertime kind of good feeling metal i am pretty sure you're gonna like them one of the bands i've actually played a track from on the show a few weeks back and the other band their debut album drops on the 29th of july that's why we're having them on the show that week and the fact that they're cool Great old school mentor, killer songs, and like I said, good time feeling summer metal. And just a couple of bits of cast iron ring news for you. Of course, Cherry talked a lot about Tommy Victor working with him, how much he liked the guy. And I will say that there's a brand new episode of Mars Attacks that my buddy Victor does. And he actually does have Tommy from Prong on that show. That one came out right about the beginning of July. But if you go to castironring.com, 
Check that one out. You can get a little more insight into Tommy Victor from Prong. Also, in case you don't know it, my pal Bob Nelbandian has been involved in a brand new documentary series called Inside L.A. Metal. And they had just recently had screenings for the first segment of that documentary series. I was lucky enough to get invited to the screenings. Of course, I was unlucky enough not to be able to get my ass out there to actually take part in it. Very bummed about that. I knew that Bob was going to have some of the cream of the L.A. rock community out there, and of course he did. So you want to do is head up to YouTube and type in Inside L.A. Metal, and you will get all of this first night screening interviews that Bob did with all those folks. Check it out. Good stuff. A lot of metal history happening there. And Bob Nelbandian and his bros doing up the Inside L.A. Metal will be bringing us the story about all that happened out there in L.A. You know, up there on YouTube, you'll also find the trailer for Inside L.A. Metal as well. Once you watch that, you guys are going to be so psyched, so excited to want to see this as well because Bob has dug up just about everybody involved in the scene. And I think he spent probably the last two years, I think, just dissecting and editing and all of this. But he has done an insane amount of interviews gone all over the place talking to people this is just an incredible thing i think if you like sam dunn's metal evolution this one may actually up it with the amount of of care and stuff that's gone on to this as well but like i said go to youtube type in inside la metal and check out the trailer and check out all the great interviews from the uh the first night of the screening so in the meantime you keep up with us on focusonmetal.net focusonmetal.blogspot.com on facebook on Twitter, always posting on Twitter. So for Richie and myself and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, here's hoping you guys have yourselves a good metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember, Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.